Hello, and welcome to Well Canvas from the University of Iowa International Programs. I'm Joan Kerr, and uh, we're here in Merge in downtown Iowa City. Thank you all for joining us tonight. The topic of tonight's program is the future of museums, and it's an intriguing subject for everyone who enjoys visiting museums, galleries, libraries, or other spaces where archival and historical collections are held. We go to these amazing spaces, but sometimes we don't think or know much about how and why they're organized or laid out as they are. We have a terrific collection of guests tonight who will take us behind the scenes and give us insight into just how galleries, libraries, archives, and museums capture the essence of the cultural moment and reinvent themselves as expectations change. I'm pleased to welcome Catherine Wilson and Liz Crooks to the conversation. Uh, Catherine Wilson is the Manager of Collections and Exhibitions at the University of Iowa Stanley Museum of Art. Thank you for being here, Catherine. Thank you for having me. And thank you especially for coming this evening on rather short notice. Uh, Lauren Lessing wasn't well tonight, so thank you for taking mm -hmm. her place. No problem. Mm -hmm. And Liz Crooks is just next to me, and she's the Director of the University of Iowa Pentecost Museums. So, Catherine, I think I'll start with you and get things rolling. <clears throat> Like everything else in life, museums change, and so do the needs and the desires of the people they aim to serve. Uh, after being without a permanent home for the collection since the floods in 2008, we've now broken ground in the new building for the university's uh, Stanley Museum of Art, and that uh, must be very exciting for all of you working at the museum. We're thrilled. Yeah, yeah. It's happening. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> the expected date for the opening is? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> of all the things. Um, Fall 2022. Great, great. Not too long to wait, it's considering on, how long. It's on my Excel sheet. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. So uh, tell us a little bit about this new building and what it might allow you to do, both in the display of, of the art objects and the paintings, and then also uh, gathering spaces for visitors. Yes, so the new museum is going to be um, adjacent to the main library, the university's main library. Um, and the ground floor will be our lobby and um, event space uh, where we will have um, programs, lectures, that sort of thing. And then on the second floor, we have all galleries, and um, we are currently working on the uh, picking out what's going to go into those galleries, which is exciting that we're at that point. And then on the third floor, we have administrative offices, collection storage, and then two we have an open storage, um, which is for display of objects in, that are fairly tightly spaced. Um, museums call it open storage. It's, mm. That's what. And then we have um, a, a visual classroom, which is which is where we'll have um, classes come in and they can request to see art, and they'll put it on display. And so students will get one-on-one uh, -on -one interaction with the art, which is something we currently do, but it'll be a lot easier. Um, having the whole collection together. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, some of us uh, listening to the program were in the prior Museum of Art, and there were a lot of spaces there uh, for, for um, you know, contemplation. You mm -hmm. could sort of walk the, the gallery space, and, and you would feel a lot of openness around you. Will this be...? I, I think it will have a lot of open feeling to it. The design of the galleries is so that we can really make each exhibition fit the space and be able to instill an open feeling in each area. Um, we're, we're, we're really thrilled. <laughs> we're really <laughs> thrilled about this new space and we're excited to see all the different ways that we can um, activate the space. Mm -hmm. um, so 
one of the questions uh, I had uh, thought we would sort of really try to embrace at the beginning of the program and then touch on throughout okay. is what is the museum of the 21st century like? And when I say museum, it could really be any kind of museum, any kind of, of um, public archive where you expect to have visitors. Um, is there a difference in the way we think about a museum in 2020 from the way we would have thought about it 100 years ago? Um, I think there definitely is one thing that I think museums have always attempted to do, but it's not been easy to do, is to provide access to the collections. And now that we can have our collections online, people can see what sort of objects we have. Um, they are able then to know that I want to go to Iowa and I want to see these pieces. And because of the internet, we're able to get all of that information out to people. Um, I think access, 21st century is all about access. If you're not providing your users with access to your collection physically, digitally, or any other way, you're not really a museum. That's 100% correct. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the digital age has really changed the ways in which people expect to interact with museums or these sorts of glam spaces. Mm -hmm. um, they expect that accessibility. Mm -hmm. and, and they should. Yes. Yeah. Well, I think some people might think, oh, well, if I can see it online, I, I don't have to go all the way to, uh, you know, the Stanley Museum to see this in person. I can just look and see what's online. Um, but that's not the way it's working out no, in real life. I would say that having digital access means that more people know about the work they want that's to. Right. Other museums want to borrow that work. It makes it a lot easier to know what you're looking for, and you can decide if you need to go see something. I think our um, loan request from other museum has gone up dramatically with our collections being online. I don't think that um, digital representations of our collections have inhibited us in any way as far as our importance as a museum. And at the Museum of Natural History, that uh, digital access allows researchers to find uh, our collection. So if you're a researcher who is looking at changes in eastern and western meadowlarks over the last 150 years, you know that we have uh, vast numbers of both from uh, the late 1800s. And you can contact us and either request to come in and access them, or we do uh, loan objects, specimens, to other museums. And you know, we're a, a living database and time machine so there's so much information that people can get from those objects that you can't always make it accessible online. And we also can't imagine how people will use our objects mm -hmm. in another 150 years. Um, so it's really exciting to see that unfold. Mm -hmm. and one of the things I like about being part of GLAM, the galleries, libraries, um, and museums group on campus is that we can talk about how we have made our collections accessible, how can we do it in a, a cohesive fashion so that there's um, ideally one day a one-stop shop where someone can come to the University of Iowa and look up whatever it is that they're researching and know who has access or who has that in their collection and how they would access it. Ethnographic objects, for example, are held in collections all over campus. And so if you're looking at a particular ethnographic group, the art museum may have some objects, we may have some objects, the office of the state archaeologist may have some objects, and so you know, oh, if I make a trip there, I'm going to want to look at all of these things. Mm -hmm. 
And so is there currently a resource, a no. single resource no. at the university? Would you like to help make that happen? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> sure. I can send you our, our meeting schedule. <laughs> what we do have currently is um, the libraries have the Iowa Digital Libraries. Yes. And um, our collection has been on that. So, And I think we get a ton of traffic because it's easy for people to search the library's website and then the results also come up on Google. And so because we have that connection with the library, it really helps both of us, um, the libraries and the art museum as far as being able to support uh, users. And that's something that the, the museums, the Museum of Natural History in particular, has started to, a place we've started to upload our images and objects to as well. Um, we have things on biological research databases all around, but um, not on one university site. Mm -hmm. So that would be a nice hub. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, well, I know one of the things that um, the Museum of Art has been in, involved in intensely since the very beginning is education, K-12 schools. Mm -hmm. Do you? I know that kids come into the Museum of Natural History and adore the place. Yes. Do you yes. also thousands send, of them every yeah. year? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, these educational outreach programs will they be continuing? I mean, is this going to to continue to be important in the future? Yes, we always uh, we will always uh, be a home to a number of K twelve activities. Um, one of the more exciting things that we're doing now is expanding and uh, targeting undergraduates with our programming and our activities as well as integrating ourselves into classrooms um, because a lot of our students now have grown up going to museums, have, have uh, been to a number of activities. They expect these kinds of things and so are more comfortable in a museum setting. What, what has been new? You've both been working in museum setting for a long time. As you look back over the years you've been doing the work you do, what are the new kinds of questions you get from visitors, um, from patrons, from people who are helping you raise money to sustain the museums? What, what are the concerns coming in from the public or the desires? For the art world, um, it's always changing as far as what the best practices are regarding um, art that you've collected um, and how... Did, did we do it ethically? Should we rethink how we collect art from around the world? Um, what do we do with something that is not, doesn't seem like we got it in the best sort of way? Mm -hmm. So those questions are evolving and changing constantly. And people are very interested in what's happening and what is the current thought and what are we going to do about it? What are we going mm -hmm. to be able to say that we're good stewards mm -hmm. of these collections. Yeah, mm -hmm. I would agree. Uh, people are very interested in uh, the context that in, in which an object came from, and particularly uh, in the last 20 years with repatriation of Native American objects. That's mm -hmm. um, really raised people's awareness. Um, and the Museum of Natural History, it, it was founded in 1857. Mm -hmm. Collecting practices have changed. We no longer send graduate students out for two years to uh, the Northwest Territory and tell them, bring back whatever you think is interesting. Um, <laughs> so 
we do have some really challenging stories to tell, but I think that that's okay too. Mm -hmm. um, we need to talk about that and, and not hide those things. It would be my dream at some point to have a symposium that looked at the history of the ethics of collecting and how they've changed. And you can get a feel for that in some sense when you walk through our mammal gallery. Um, we have uh, ex exhibitions have changed throughout the years, and it's very much reflected. Um, collecting practices have shaped that, and so uh, I'd really enjoy having a, a look at that. Mm -hmm. um, and it, we're not unique in that. Mm -hmm. All museums are dealing with that. Yeah, right. And they're right. good questions to ask. Mm -hmm. People should be asking them. Uh huh. And I, I suppose with each object, the ethical there there may be the same ethical question as as an overarching question. But for each individual piece, there may be a different rationale that would help you decide what you do. Um, um, finances for these museums um, is is the financial stability always always an issue? I think about that every day. Yeah. Every day. Yeah. All day. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to invite you to my development meetings, too, <laughs> Right. But, um, but so I suppose that only it naturally follows that the greater community connection you can have, the greater accessibility you uh, can give people, the more you sort of prove your, your value to the larger community, the yes. better off Absolutely. you are. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. We're not valuable. We won't stay open. That's mm -hmm. right. Um, and that is something that we think about daily and how can we be more accessible? Who do we want to reach? How can we reach them? And trying to work with communities rather than imposing, I bet you really want to know about this when you mm -hmm. instead, that is how it's been for the museum world is going out, we're going to help you, let's... We're going come, to show you, We're going to show you. you, teach you, and now the thought is, how about have the communities come to us and tell us what they want, mm -hmm. and then how we can work together. And for us, um, the, the Stanley also, it's about storytelling. Mm -hmm. It's uh, letting people know all of the amazing things that happen in the museum that they may have no idea are yeah. uh, all of those things that a poetry class has come in and are using our uh, mammal collections in storage as prompts for poetry. Mm. That's real. That's a fun class to tag along with because <laughs> when you open up a drawer, the uh, reaction is amazing. But uh, those are the important things for people to understand, particularly as a university museum. Uh, we're here first and foremost for our students and our campus community, and then our uh, larger statewide community, and, and then circles out from that. Um, so that's a fun story to tell. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, and one of the other stories that, of course, um, the university's been telling for a long time and will, I'm sure, forever, is the story of the Jackson Pollock uh, mm -hmm. painting. And, of course, it yep. has, has not had its home here for some time, but oh, that yeah. will come back. Yeah. But yeah, it's a good calling card. You go around the world it with is. painting like that, and mm -hmm. and we're able to talk to people about the logistics of that. Mm -hmm. It's it's the logistics to move mural is amazingly difficult, <laughs> and to be able to go and talk to different museums and figure out how they would deal with physically getting the painting into their building is fascinating. And we find out new things pretty much every museum we go to. Mm -hmm. um, and then we can share that with our um, our public, which yeah. 
that sort of thing is fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and a painting like that, which, you know, the, the uh, very brief version of the story, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but given by Peggy Guggenheim, not really recognized for some time as, as being... Mm-hmm. as having the impact that it currently has and, and the national, international reputation. Yes. And uh, I suspect there are other things like this that you become aware of in the collection that maybe have been sort of sitting on a dusty shelf or really not looked at for a long time, and then you recognize that maybe because of something else happening in the art world, we have one of those pieces. Yes, it's... Um Mural came to the University of Iowa because we were the only museum who would pay the $75 to ship it. (laughs) (laughs) That is why we have Mural. Um, And so it wasn't valued as much as at first. And we have other collections that we've acquired fairly recently that weren't valued particularly highly. And now we get requests from all over the world to borrow pieces from this collection. And if you had asked me, I would have said, never, no one's going to be interested in it, but mm-hmm. the world's taste change. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And similar stories, I suppose. Oh, absolutely. Uh, we have over 130,000 objects in our collections between the two museums, and there's always something that you find, um, you know, a, a huge tropical fish that uh, one of the former presidents of the university caught in the uh, late 1800s, and it was taxidermied. He never paid the bill, so we still have the fish. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, that's kind of (laughs) cool. It's really ugly, though, and it's huge. So maybe his wife spoke up, and that's why we still have the fish. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, But, yeah, there are those stories uh, everywhere, in every drawer that we open, Everything that we find, we had a student working with our muscle collection, shells, not human. Um, (laughs) We don't have any of those. Uh, But our uh, muscle shell collection, and she spent an entire summer cleaning off all of the coal dust and tar deposits because the building used to be heated with and lit with coal. And so cleaning all of these absolutely amazing shells that were from the Iowa, or yes, the Iowa River and the Mississippi River, um, species that don't exist anymore. And uh, they're gorgeous, mm-hmm. and their stories are incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, to find all of the shells that were collected and um, were used as button blanks, and so they have all of the button holes punched in them. It's amazing. Yeah. There are amazing things in uh, in our walls. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot of fun. What What is the uh, split between um, uh, youth visitors, ki- kids connected with school visits, and general public at the Museum of Natural History? Um, ours uh, annually is probably 60-40, uh, 40% youth groups, kids, oh, really? summer camps. Yeah, yeah. Um, we do a lot of things in the summer with summer camps, and uh, then 60% families, more family-oriented, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. or students who are in for classes or come as a, it's a sanctuary for them during yeah. study times. And so yeah. it also depends a lot on the exhibits that we have mm-hmm. open. So mm-hmm. that can really mm-hmm. skew things. Mm-hmm. And some years ago, you created a, is it a biosphere? Yes, the yeah. Biosphere mm-hmm. Discovery Hub. Yeah. Yes. It's, fabulous. It's yeah. amazing. Yes. It's really a very special place that looks at the um, 
biodiversity of our state mm -hmm. and how it's changed over since the um, introduction of intensive agriculture yeah. in yeah. our our world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you have mentioned earlier in the discussion a couple times GLAM, and um, uh, it stands for Galleries, Libraries, Archives, and Museums. Mm -hmm. um, but this GLAM initiative uh, here on campus, is it um, formalizing in some way the sort of casual mm -hmm. partnerships and connections that had always existed, but this Absolutely. is a much oh, more yes. intentional? Absolutely. Yeah. 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 We, um, for the art museum, we've worked very closely with the libraries more and more. Um, we are working on getting more students involved across the different museums and the libraries we're trying to share. Um, and just being able to do this in a methodical way when we, when the GLAM initiative started, um, our directors didn't think we collaborated very much, but we collaborated more than they thought. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a lot of formalizing the relationships and thinking more strategically about how we can help each other um, succeed. Mm -hmm. The resources that we could share. We all have the same um, concerns and challenges, too. You know, they may take different forms, but mostly they're all the same. And how can we speak together with one voice all of the, these different groups on campus who are working toward similar goals and uh, help advance each other's causes. And for me, that one voice of advocacy has been the most rewarding part of the endeavor. Uh, I know there have been a lot of other really uh, funny little things that have happened. Um, we had exhibition walls that we didn't use anymore and a call came out from the libraries. Does anybody have exhibition walls? We need some. And uh, why, well, yes, we do. When would you like to come pick them up? And they yeah. were exactly the same brand and size as the ones that they needed. So being able, and they're really expensive. It's not like, yeah. in, and yeah. hard to get. You can't run to the uh, convenience store and pick them up. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. to be able to share those kinds of things um, and the expertise, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. there is a vast body of knowledge on this campus. And to be able to tap into that so easily uh, is, is wonderful. Hmm. Well, I think the future looks pretty bright with you guys working <laughs> on these things here. And, and um, regarding these next few years, is there any, is there any, big, big thing that's going to happen prior to the opening of the museum? I mean, have you got something special coming up? I know there's a symposium happening in, I think, March related to, uh, we'll hear about that later on, yeah. um, related to the future of museums. And, and uh, there'll be much deeper conversation, I guess, there. But, but um, what are the big things you look forward to? I uh, have a goal at the Museum of Natural History to be able to conserve and restore our Laison Island Cyclorama. Oh, great. Um, great. It has been relatively untouched since it went in in 1914. Mm -hmm. And um, its its condition is very precarious. And we don't have a lot of time mm -hmm. to uh, save it before it's past the point of no repair. And so um, personally, as, as the director now, that's one of my main mm -hmm. goals is to uh, undertake that uh, fundraising project and then also to start that work. Is there an opportunity for volunteers to help once the physical part of that begins? Probably not. Yeah. <laughs> it's very, um, there are only a few people in the world who have the skill set mm -hmm. necessary. Because again, we're talking about um, objects that 
were collected 110 years ago and um, have been exposed to all of the elements and the, the coal dust and the yeah. soot and yeah. all of those things. And they're seabirds, so they're already a little oily. And so they just, uh -huh. even now, even today, it's amazing. They just suck that stuff right up. Wow. So uh, it's a very special skill set. Mm -hmm. And uh, again, the mural that's behind it has to be restored. And that's uh, a whole nother that's a great project, set of skills. Though. Yeah, but it that's will be great. really exciting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for me, as the collections manager, the next two years will be moving the collection back from Davenport. Um, so that's all I'm thinking about. Really. <laughs> that's a lot well, can't thank you enough, Catherine and Liz, for starting us off tonight. Really appreciate it very much. And thank good you luck. for having us. Good luck with all of this, you bet. And to all of you, we'll be back with part two of this program in just a moment. <laughs> thank you. Um, University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr, and we're coming to you from Merge in downtown Iowa City. Thank you for joining us. We're talking tonight about the future of museums, and our guests in this segment are responsible for activating collections. We'll discuss what that means in just a moment. Uh, my guests are Joyce Tsai, Chief Curator at the University of Iowa Stanley Museum of Art and Associate Professor of Practice in the School of Art and Art History here at the University. Uh, thank you, Joyce, for being here. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Next to her is Margaret Gam, the head of special collections at the University of Iowa Libraries here at the university. Thank you so much, Margaret. Thank you. And at the far end, we have Heidi Lung, lecturer and program director of museum studies here at the university. So great group. Glad to have you here. And um, I think, Joyce, I have to start with you and ask you what it means in the context of the Stanley Museum of Art to activate a collection. So first off, I want to, for those who are listening at home, I just want to thank everyone for coming out this evening. It's so satisfying to see members of the general public, our museum supporters, and also our students here, um, along with our faculty. It's, uh, you know, it, it reminds us of the reason why we exist. Um, the University of Iowa uh, Museum Collection actually began a long time ago before the museum even existed. Um, these collections emerged in part to support, you know, the establishment of the very first MFA program in the country that was here at the University of Iowa. So this is how we started collecting 
artworks. Um, they were bought. Um, you know, we bought uh, uh, Max Beckmann's painting uh, Carnival uh, just three years after it was painted in 46. Um, we were, uh, you know, the recipient of the Pollock mural. Um, and over the years, as the renown of the collection grew, um, you know, we needed the infrastructure to take care of these collections. Um, artworks, don't last forever, um, and they need constant care and special attention to um, allow them to be to exist, but also so that we can have access to them. Um, so, you know, that's that's a kind of brief history and background of how these collections came to being. Um, but the museum itself wasn't even built until the 1960s, and it was really the result of um, a lot of community investment and support that uh, we were able. You know, we we gathered the resources. To, um, to build the museum. And uh, since the flood, our community of supporters have really you know, rallied with us so that we're actually at the point right now where we're on the cusp of opening our new building. So um, all of that is background to you know, giving us a sense of why we exist, for whom, and you know, to the whole question of like, what it means to activate collections. Um, museums are not just repositories. We have artworks um, or artifacts, objects that have meaning. They were collected because they had meaning for different communities. But the meaning of something changes over time. Values change over time. So, you know, today we got the terrible news that Beverly Pepper has passed away. She was one of the most um, innovative uh, female sculptors, women sculptors were, you know, she was one of the first to really work with Corten Steel. We have um, one of her sculptures and we also have um, some, some other works by her. Um, but, you know, Beverly Pepper's work um, wasn't necessarily valued as highly during her time when she was doing all of these innovative things, um, you know, in the 60s and 70s. But now, you know, she is internationally renowned. Again, it speaks to how, um, you know, there are objects that come into our collections at an earlier moment. And, uh, you know, it's through the act of showing, through the act of exhibition, and through the act of research that we activate these objects that they, you know, enter into circulation. Um, I feel particularly privileged to be working in the context of an academic art museum so that we can build these partnerships with, um, you know, faculty members, certainly, but also with other units across campus. Um, we've worked very closely uh, with the libraries and also other museums and collections across campus. We've mounted collaborative exhibitions, um, and we've also, you know, in the audience in the next session, um, I've worked very closely with Jen Buck on research projects and publications. Um, I've worked with other faculty members on exhibitions. Um, so these are all different ways of activating the collection, but there's also other, other ways that um, our collections are activated. Next week, next Thursday, um, a student group at Af the African American uh, Student Association is coming into our space to do a poetry reading. So it's a group um, uh, that, that's going to come in and take a look at our collections. And there are going to be musical performances and poetry readings. I mean, that's another way that our spaces and our collections um, become active. Mm -hmm. so. Well, you know, I can add one more to that. Um, when the museum uh, was no longer uh, able to be used, 
we had to stop doing a program that mm -hmm. I had done with the public radio stations in the museum for many, many years, a program called Know the Score, which was so nice because it involved music and discussion, yeah, yeah. sometimes about the artworks, yeah. but sometimes about um, an historical period to which people could make a connection with the art when they later walked through the museum. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, all of these, these opportunities to bring people together to yeah. explore new ideas or think about things in a different way I think are so, so important. Yeah, and you know, I'd, I'd love to take this opportunity to plug some of the programs that Kim Datchuk um, has put together. So she's uh, launched this uh, program called Saturdays at the Stanley, where it's a kind of more informal format um, at around two o'clock on Saturdays. The last program that they, they held uh, was music at the Stanley, um, or one of the last programs that they held um, included musical performances. Um, in April, I'll be talking uh, about art conservation. Um, and so so, you know, that's an opportunity yeah. for us to have all sorts of different sorts of conversations um, in front of artworks. So. Mm -hmm. Well, and I, I have to, I think all of us want to uh, give a lot of credit to those of you who have worked at the um, Museum of Art, Stanley Museum of Art, for all these many years when the, the main large building was no longer available, all of the work it takes to both use the room in the IMU and, and the figgy and so on and so forth. It's, it's a monumental project and not easy for... Yeah, and it requires so many different kinds of partnerships. I mean, the Figgy Art Museum has been so uh, it has been absolutely crucial to our success. Um, you know, they have uh, not only provided space for our collections, but um, have allowed us to kind of uh, to present robust uh, exhibitions within their space and uh, to build these partnerships. and And I have to say, I've learned so much looking at their exhibitions and looking at their uh, programming. Um, so, you know, those kinds of partnerships are uh, across the state have been really important. Um, and the partnerships that we have on campus have been um, really vital uh, and the kind of steadfast uh, yeah. support of our community, mm -hmm. of our supporters, um, has been really inspiring. Mm -hmm. And is it true that the uh, museum, once it opens here in a couple of years, will continue to be free? Yes, absolutely. I mean, and how that fabulous is, is that? That is it's amazing. That yeah. is something that we are absolutely committed to. Uh -huh. um, and, but, you know, I, I also have to say, like, just because you're free doesn't mean you're accessible. And so, mm -hmm. you know, accessibility is something that we are working on very actively in terms of, you know, to, to piggyback off of the conversation before, um, to really think through how we serve um, our different you know, constituents, communities, um, you know, f faculty, the general public, um, students, uh, Iowans. I mean, we are a collection that belongs to the state of Iowa. That's something that we believe, um, and it's part of our mission and mm -hmm. part of our identity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So. Well, well, let me just move next to Margaret. And Special Collections is another one of those amazing treasures here, here at the university. Some of the things you have there, perhaps you can even later talk about some of the, the uh, really special um, works that many in our audience may not know about. But, but how do you think about activating the collection when it's really so very special and, so, um, and needs such special care? Right. I mean, special is in the name for sure. Um, so I guess I'll, I'll start with what is in special collections. So we have rare books, manuscripts, maps, archives. Um, I think the things that a lot of people do tend to think about are those very expensive books. 
you know, the, the ones that cost hundred of, hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions, um, those certainly exist. But what we see many researchers using are the archival collections, those really unique holdings that only we have that uh, nobody else has access to, or nobody else has in their collections. You know, I'm thinking of um, some of the more recent acquisitions like uh, the papers of Tom Brokaw, for example. Um, those ca caused quite a stir when they arrived here on campus, and uh, we had an exhibit that kind of tied into those later with The Greatest Generation. Um, speaking of The gen Greatest Generation, uh, we really were able to pull from a lot of our collections focused on World War II during that time. So diaries and letters from all across special collections proper, the university archives, and the Iowa Women's Archives. So I think activating those collections, I mean, exhibits are one way to do that for sure, but working with our colleagues across campus, you know, thinking of the exhibits, Joyce herself um, just recently curated an exhibit held within special collections, and we had some wonderful turnout for that um, and for events tied to that. We also have an exhibit right now on the pull of horses down in the uh, main library gallery which is a relatively new space. We've only had it for about three or four years now. But I think it's really opened up the possibilities for bringing in material from other collections and for really exposing a bigger audience to those special collections that we have uh, that a lot of people are only used to accessing in the reading room, mm -hmm. um, which requires going up to the third floor of the main library and knowing where we are. Mm -hmm. It's not <laughs> kind of a tall order sometimes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, and I, I know that every time I, I learn about this, I feel a little shocked with if someone does go into the reading room and asks to look at a, you know, really a priceless work of books, let's, let's say um, maybe an illustrated uh, manuscript from uh, the Middle Ages. That, that is brought right out to the person sitting at the desk, and depending upon the, the piece, maybe you can or cannot touch any of the, of the pages, um, but... I mean, that's just incredible. You can't go to, uh, you, you know, you go to the Museum of the Middle Ages in Paris and they don't bring out a book for you to just turn the pages and flip through it as you like. For sure. It's uh, one of the wonderful things about special collections is that we are open to everybody and it is entirely free to use. We don't have any registration requirements. Um, you know, you don't have to be a formal researcher working with an institution in order to use our materials. Anybody can come in the door whenever we're open and just take a look at those materials and handle them. We, of course, do have handling requirements. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. So you can handle that illuminated manuscript, but we might have some guidelines for you on exactly how to do so. Um, you know, we have cradles and, and uh, recommended conservation methods from the preservation department and just best practices within the field. But yes, any, any of you are welcome to come in anytime. Mm -hmm. What's your background in terms of uh, the, the library work you do now? Have you always concentrated in the special collections area? Uh, yes, I, I have been in special collections now um, since before I went to graduate school in library science. Uh, but I think people arrive at special collections in a number of ways. Uh, you know, it, you can, some people have museum studies backgrounds, uh, others have library science, others have history or English. It can really vary. And the composition of special collection staff, um, I think really adds a lot of subject expertise 
to any given collection and can help shape the collection in new ways that are of benefit to the people who come in and use those collections. Mm-hmm. Well, you mentioned the Brokaw collection, which is a, a recent addition. Um, and there might be a temptation to think, well, special collections is this thing that lives there. Special collections is sort of complete. They have what they're going to have. But that's not true, is it? You're constantly hearing about and perhaps pursuing pieces you would like for the collection. Yes, absolutely. We're uh, growing in new ways all the time. Um, One of our other large, very large, (laughs) uh, major acquisitions recently has been the Ruth and Marvin Sackner Archive of Concrete and Visual Poetry, which added thousands of items to our holdings. And that's been a particularly exciting addition and one which really promises a lot of collaborative opportunities between museums on campus and the libraries. Mm-hmm. It's astounding. <laughs> <laughs> we agree. Uh, so I take it you're working together on yeah, how you I might. Mean, it's what's really great about working in a university context is that you know the art museum has its own strengths but the special collections has other strengths. And part of that has to do with the histories of collecting. Um, The library collected things that back in the day, museums, art museums didn't take seriously. So, you know, the the library was acquiring things like ephemera, artist ephemera, zines, um, data, fluxus materials, um, and concrete, you know, now with the collection of concrete and visual poetry, those are all things that, um, you know, they complement the strengths that we have in the museum, but we don't have those things. So it's really thrilling to be able to borrow these things right down the street. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, a couple of years ago, um, I actually did a show that drew very heavily from the Dada collection. It was a, it was a really exciting Dada Futures was what it was called. It was a, a lot of fun. It's a great exhibit. Yeah. yeah. Well, so Heidi, uh, you direct the Museum Studies program here. Mm-hmm. And uh, first of all, maybe you can explain what that program is all about and the certificate and so on. But then um, tell us how you interact with all of all of these other uh, spaces on campus. Well, I'm just, I, I feel very fortunate. I come from, <clears throat> before coming to the university, I was in the museum field for 20 years. I worked at the St. Louis Art Museum for 10 years and then at the St. Louis Science Center for almost 10 years. And so I have a very background as an educator and community outreach and, and within different types of museums. And so coming to the university and now I'm charged with training the future of museum <laughs> professionals, right? And, and so this is very exciting to have, all the, to have access to all these wonderful collections, whether it be the Art Museum or Special Collections or Pettacrest Museums or any of the other numerous collections that we have on campus. I mean, it's just a wealth of, of riches that I can have students engage with and learn from. And so when I think about, you know, activating collections, um, and I see some students out there, so I might quiz you, but we <laughs> talk about the three functions of museums, and you've heard the, the, the panelists before in this panel talking about these kinds of things. There are three things that museums do. They preserve, they research, and they communicate ideas, whether that be through publications or exhibitions. And so this is really important. This is something that you know I train students in, and we think about these things. But an even bigger idea in, than that, the big idea from activating collections is to move beyond the object itself. So objects are evidence, correct? They're evidence of our ideas, our creativity, our history, our culture, our identity. 
And so getting um, students, when they're thinking about preserving and researching and communicating about these things, that the object is important, but more important is the person who stands in front of the object. And early in my career, um, I was hypnotized by engaging with um, with uh, the public because it was this thing that happened when people got in front of different art or different historical objects where it was like museum magic. You know, I called it museum magic before I had uh, the background to really understand what it was. And it's really just this point where visitors bring, you, you bring your own identity, you bring your own experiences, everybody interacts with objects differently. And so it's really important for students to understand that yes, they need to know the research behind the object, they need to know um, how to preserve the objects, they need to be able to commute communicate ideas, but they also need to be able to listen, you know, and listening to the audience and being responsive. And so over time, um, you know, I didn't come to this right away. I was, you know, you learn about the objects and you want to share that information, but over the course of my career, I've been able to listen more closely and really observe how people interact with objects. And so this is something I try to share with students and to realize that as you have a career with a special collection, or with the objects at the Stanley, you watch how people interact with the objects at different times, and that can change. Mm -hmm. It can change not only because, you know, you could go to the museum every day and see the same object, and you would see something different. You would feel something different. But um, what's really important is to be responsive to the things that are happening in the community. And I think that that's something, when we talk about activating collections, that's where the power lies where museums can really be transformative spaces. They can move beyond, I mean, education is a wonderful thing to be, and a place to preserve and collect ideas is great, but these places where, you know, there's the power to transform um, our community, our identity, our ideas, and really come together and share those different perspectives. Yeah, um, and I, I imagine that one of the things you, both when you're training students and then also uh, when you label works or when you think about putting works together, um, it's already been mentioned in the program that the way we see things, the way we understand things culturally or historically um, changes and can change in very dramatic and important ways that you, you have to be aware of, you need to be sensitive to questions about certain kinds of pieces. Um, um, so when you teach your students, are they just sort of sucking all that in and really, really appreciating the importance of, of being able to really figure out not only what is the piece and, and you know, its dimensions and whatever else, but... and on the one hand, how to engage audiences, but on the other, how to represent a larger context um, as appropriately as, as they can, can do it at any given time. Well, I think with students, it's a lot about doing the work themselves. And, mm -hmm. and of course, these collections that we have on campus allow us to do this. And there's nothing more powerful than being in front of the authentic. Mm -hmm. And um, I think the other thing that's helpful is having, you know, museum studies is an interdisciplinary um, field. And so we have historians, we have art historians, we have um, business majors, we have all kinds of people that come to museums. And so my students have varied backgrounds and varied perspectives. And so when they come to a piece, they listen to each other. And I think that's kind of where they gain some experience about 
different perspectives and how, how different audiences bring different things and how we engage with those in different ways. It's very powerful. Um, even for me, I'm continuously learning through my students to see how they're interpreting and, um, and processing and, and, and sharing ideas with each other. So, mm -hmm. Yeah. So if I could piggyback off of that um, idea, I mean, we uh, are in the, we have launched a paid uh, internship program. And so we have graduate fellows and also undergraduate uh, interns who work very closely with, um, you know, the, our, my, myself and my colleagues. And um, they do really important research and they do very important work. Um, you know, Beverly Pepper, who I just mentioned, um, the sculptor, um, you know, one of the students that we had, um, she did extensive research on the condition and it really helped us better understand how it was made, what the materials were, and what the kind of best practices might look like in treating it so that we can prepare it to be installed in the new museum. That is work that um, was incredibly invaluable and uh, it was done by a student and that, that prepared her for her own kind of future path, mm -hmm. so. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Well, and as uh, the new museum goes up, connected really to the, the library itself, which is now such an interesting hub space for yeah. students to, to do all kinds of more social things than was the case many years ago, um, I, it seems like a, a natural collaboration will follow there. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> I, think that's I think we're looking forward to that. Um, you know, we, as we've mentioned before, we have done so much collaborative work in the past, but I think the proximity of the two buildings is really going to open up the opportunity, especially for more classes to come into both spaces. Uh, we've had classes be interested in coming into both special collections and the Museum of Art before, but they often have to split that over multiple mm -hmm. days just because of the physical time that it takes to walk. Um, so I, I think that that will be a lot of fun to see what we can do with that. Yeah, yeah. Gosh, well, thank you so much, all of you. Heidi, Margaret, Joyce, really appreciate you being here this afternoon. And uh, uh, we have one more segment ahead of us, so please stay with us and thanks, say thanks to our guests.
and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr, and we're coming to you from Merge in downtown Iowa City. Thanks for joining us for this conversation about the future of museums. Uh, in this portion of the program, we'll be talking about historical and uh, ethnographic museums. We'll also be talking about performance. And um, I'm going to turn first to Jen Buckley. Jen Buckley is next to me here. She teaches in the English department. Glenn Penny is a history professor. And uh, I think we'll start with you first, Jen, because you are going to help us understand how things have changed uh, maybe many years ago, but certainly now performance within museums, uh, bringing theater, dance, different kinds of performance into museum spaces is really, uh, it's happening a lot. People enjoy it. So uh, what difference does that make to the appreciation of the art? So um, thank you first for having mm-hmm. us on the program. Um, I want to say that unlike my colleagues who gave us such illuminating talks in the first couple of segments, <laughs> I am not a glam professional. Um, I like to think I'm glam, um, but I'm not, <laughs> not are, a glam professional. Um, but you're quite right. One of my research interests is in how performance is living in museums and galleries and libraries and archives. And these days it's living very large. Um, So when I say performance, I am, first of all, referring to what most people would recognize as the performing arts, right? Especially theater and dance, as you were saying, and also what some would call body art. So art that uses the body of the artist as its primary medium, otherwise known as performance art. Um, So for a long time, the academic and perhaps curatorial party line on what these forms of performance, especially body art could do in museums was, was not much, right? It's live art. Um, it's experienced in the moment by groups of people. Um, and when it ended, it was over. That was the thinking. It couldn't be acquired or conserved or exhibited in museums because they're made and received live in the moment. Um, and it's true uh, that many of the best-known performance art pieces of what I like to think of as the heroic era of the 1960s and 1970s and 80s that were uh, staged in galleries, were performed. I'm thinking of artists here like Adrian Piper or Alan Capro, um, a number of the artists who came through the University of Iowa's pioneering intermedia program, in fact. Um, They were making art outside of institutional spaces. And when they made them in gallery spaces, it was seen as kind of an affront to the gallery or an affront, a rejection of what it is that museums with their paintings on the wall and their sculptures on plinths really stood for. Um, Those arts are what we call time-based. And like I said, seemingly when the performance ends, the work is over. So how could that be saved? How could that be collected? Um, That conventional wisdom has changed and changed very, very dramatically over the last few decades. Um, At first, the thinking was, like I said, performances, liveness, the way that it ended, the way there was nothing to conserve, nothing to save, was seen as not just a rejection of museum practice, but also of the art market, right? It couldn't be commodified. It couldn't be bought and sold. It disappeared. To use a word that came up earlier in the program, it was ephemeral. Um, But one of the um, symposium keynote speakers, and I'm going to try to mention the symposium whenever mm-hmm. I can mm-hmm. by way of advertising on this program. <laughs> One of the symposium's keynote speakers, Amelia Jones, started arguing in the late 1990s that live performance, in fact, didn't disappear when the initiating event ended. That documentation of performance, like photographs and video and artifacts, that they offered people an experience of the performance that they perceived with their own bodies in their own time 
whether or not that occurred in museum spaces. And so documentation, too, could be considered performative. That's the term she uses. And I have no doubt that will come up in her keynote lecture. So, but in this century, um, performance artist, um, the artist Tino Segal comes to mind immediately, started selling live performance pieces to museums. Now, the way he does it is really distinctive. Um, there's no documentation at all. Um, it's done by verbal agreement and handshake. Um, the Hershorn Museum, which is part of the Smithsonian Institutions, bought one in 2017, and it makes museum professionals really, really, really nervous to buy a work that only exists live in time, and there's no contract associated with it. <laughs> I'm seeing our, our glam professionals in the room, their eyes are going like <laughs> widening um, with horror at this. Um, but what, what museum professionals are finding is that visitors, patrons, and even donors are hungry for this type of live work, that the kinds of interactive, um, sometimes for positive and negative, depending on how aggressive the work is, the interactive exchanges that happen in the time and space of performance within the museum, within the gallery, is powerful for patrons, perhaps especially at this moment, which we call the digital era. Um, we've talked a little bit in earlier segments about how the digital um, does not replace the museum the space, the people, um, the collective experience of receiving artwork, and in this case, participating in the artwork. And I think performance, the hunger for performance, um, the art markets rush to acquire performance, museums rush to commission and stage performance and to exhibit its artifacts is precisely part of a response to that hunger that people have for live, embodied experience, often with other people in real spaces, which are infrastructures that need to be preserved, I should say. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that's how I'll start. Yeah, no, that sounds good. Well, so um, I'm sure that this, you know, there are a thousand different ways to do it, but is the intention sometimes from the performing artist or the, the person who's doing this embodied activity, do they want to somehow um, interact with paintings that may be hung on the wall or with sculpture in a given room. I mean, is the idea that usually those objects aren't just there as background, they're yes. integrated into the work. Yes, um, and that's become an increasingly common practice. I don't want to say it was invented in the 21st century. Um, one of the performance artists, really a multimedia artist I wrote about in my own book, Carolee Schneemann, um, was performing in and among the collections of the Brooklyn Museum in the 1970s. Um, on two other artists who come to mind, a really famous example are Coco Fusco and Guillermo Gomez Pena, um, who performed in art museums, natural history museums, anthropological museums, a live performance piece back in the early 1990s. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is not an entirely new practice, but the scale on which it's done now, um, the, the breadth of performance practice within galleries and museums, very often in conjunction with, and sometimes in really pointed conjunction with the collected artworks, I think has is notable. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm thinking also of very well-known museums, museums that will be known to almost all of our listeners, the ways in which they're also privileging live performance. One example of the kind of performance you describe mm-hmm. that is um, conducted with and among the artworks um, was at the Tate Modern. Um, two Romanian artists uh, staged a piece, this is back in 2016, called Public Collection Tate Modern. It was very pointedly titled. Um, and the artists performed live 
with and among the permanent collection as a way of pointing to what it was that the Tate Modern collected, um, how they collected it, how they exhibited it. And so what the embodied performance did, and it involved participants as well as the performing artists, was to make visible in a way that bodies could receive in real time what collecting practices were. Um, you know, our, our, the guests on the previous, previous segments pointed out that there is a kind of um, relatively new reflectiveness about collecting, the ethics of collecting, um, the ethics of exhibiting, um, the ways in which these practices um, share our values as a culture, as institutions. And part of what I see these performances pointing out is precisely making visible and making perceptible those values mm -hmm. for audiences who, um, you know, in many cases will line up, or I can think of multiple cases in which this is true, will line up around the block to be part of these mm -hmm. experiences in museum spaces and gallery mm -hmm. spaces. Wow. Oh, very cool. Well, let's, uh, let's jump over to Glenn now and talk a little bit about some of your research, some of your writing, some of the work you've done. Um, I think much of it based in and around Germany with ethnographic museums that I think in many cases, what, go back to uh, the 19th century or perhaps even earlier. Um, what, what do you learn by uh, looking at these ethnographic museums in the context of today? What do I learn personally? Or do what do you, what does one learn? Yes. Um, what does one learn? And the thing about the ethnographic museums is that uh, if you'd gone there in the 70s, you would have found these sort of dusty places where not a lot of people went um, and where scholarships seemed to have stopped or been frozen. And as the popularity of museums went up at the end of the 20th century, well, all the boats floated together. And suddenly people got a new look into these museums. And what they found was actually treasure troves full of human history. And every single object, somebody earlier mentioned that you open a drawer, you find an object as a story. And this is true, but the thing about ethnographic museums is they're all things that have been produced by people, very specific times and places. And every object that's created contains a little piece of the creator's worldview. So what you have are not just collections of objects, but collections of ontologies collections of the ways in which people engage with the world around them, most of which we don't know much about anymore because the vast majority of the people who produced them were illiterate. So there are no written records. These are the records. Mm -hmm. So what's happened, the really exciting thing that's happened in museum anthropology in the last two or three decades, but really has hyped up in the last five or six years, is the notion that the objects are texts that can be read and can teach us a great deal about history that we just don't know. And the funny thing is that most people walk into a museum and don't realize that 90 for 5 or maybe 99% of the objects aren't on display. The vast majority are hidden away in, um, in storage facilities and depots, sometimes in basements and back rooms. Um, a lot of them, in the case of the big German museums, the one in Berlin has over a half million objects, and a lot of them haven't been unpacked in decades. So a lot of the people who work in the museum have never seen the object. So I think one of the big moves now, at this very moment, is to unpack the museums, to free the objects from their seclusion, to allow them to teach us to see a history that we forgot. Right, right. And maybe also in some cases, uh, if, if there is an existing community that in, relates historically to those objects, to, to include those folks in the discussion of maybe understanding what these all mean and, uh, you know, what should be done with them and should they be returned to the community or whatever. Are these discussions that go on? Oh, they're going on constantly, yeah. Mm -hmm. Patriation has been, I don't know, for the last 30 years or more, incredibly important. And in Europe, just in the last two or three years, there's basically 
basically an explosion of discussion. Some of them are driven by, um, I guess you'd call it indigenous activists or cultural practitioners, professional repatriation experts that come from wherever the objects came from. Mm -hmm. um, some of them are driven by uh, also just efforts at human rights, right? When you get yeah. indigenous movements meeting at the UN, talking about rights, they also have rights to histories that are stored in these different places. So a lot of the work, the really interesting work, is collaborative. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, I would, I would go so far to say that um, most of the really good exhibits have been collaborative uh, when the exhibits are about particular times and places. There was one recently in Munich called From Samoa with Love, and the entire thing was about objects in the museum that were collected by Samoan performers that had toured through Germany at the turn of the, turn of the 20th century, and then they found descendants. And then they talked to the people about what these objects were, why the people had come to visit Germany, mm -hmm. what it had been like, what they knew, the impact it had in their family histories, and then the entire exhibit was a collaborative exhibit. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, just if I could add to that, um, and also plug the symposium again. Um, <laughs> so good, the symposium. <laughs> um, so several of the symposium participants, the roundtable participants, are going to be speaking on how museums perform cultural values. And the one that comes to mind, sort of drawing on what you've just said, um, is Jill Alberg-Yohi, who is a, a curator at the Minneapolis Institute of Art. And working with the, the Kiowa artist Terry Greaves, they curated with a, a board of indigenous women artists, a groundbreaking exhibition of, of Native American women's art uh, at the MIA. It was called Hearts of Our People. Um, and it was, by all accounts, precisely the, the collaborative shared effort to determine what would be both the ethical and the artistically and culturally valuable way of exhibiting these artworks, many of which in previous generations would not have been considered art. Mm -hmm. How can we do that in a way that involves um, communities in decision-making around how to strike those balances? Um, that's precisely at the heart of the work that Jill and, and Terry did with their, their curatorial board. Um, and from what I, I know of the exhibition um, and what I've seen, it seems to have been a, a strikingly successful collaboration. Mm -hmm. So as an historian, you, you focus much of your work on Germany. Was there was Germany special in the way that it um, that that in its interest uh, for collecting these various materials for creating ethnographic museums? Was there something about Germany that that um, uh, represented a unique interest in these things? Yeah. So this is actually the two hundred fiftieth. Last year was the two hundred fiftieth anniversary of Alexander von Humboldt's birth or his death, I don't really remember. Um, but anyway, he was around a long time, so we had a celebration. <laughs> Everyone remembered that uh, Humboldtian science, the Humboldtian world, is actually a, an effort to try and understand the entire cosmos mm -hmm. and its interreactions, inter, interrelationships. And there's mm -hmm. reasons why people like Muir and many others were, who became environmentalists, uh, even like Rachel Carson, were, would look back to Humboldt and say, here's an interconnectedness, it's all one whole, how does it relate? And this drove a kind of science that was pretty ubiquitous in the 19th century and formed German ethnology, which is why the largest collecting museums in the world were in Germany and not somewhere else. Mm. Because essentially, they knew already what I just said, that the objects are texts, that they are historical records created by people who didn't write down their history. So they went out trying to collect them at a moment in time where, because of industrialization being quite rapid, transformations of the world, they saw records about the past evaporating. And they tried to capture as many as they could and then store them. And that's what they did. So, yeah, there is a particular um, wealth 
of historical material in those places as a result. But I, I'd like to just give another plug for rethinking what exhibition is all about mm -hmm. museums. Mm -hmm. Because um, I think one of the most exciting things happening in museum anthropology today is not thinking of exhibits as places that are didactic, in which mm -hmm. knowledge that we have created, either collaboratively or individually, is then distributed or dispensed or given to a broader public, mm -hmm. but rather a place where objects become interlocutors, become part of the conversation. They actually teach us juxtapositions of objects, help us see things. Mm -hmm. And the us is not necessarily a group of pointy-headed academics. Mm -hmm. It could be a much broader, more interesting mm -hmm. group of people who can bring together their I'm sorry, um, we can bring together their individual uh, perspectives and talk, have dialogue yeah. about what the objects are saying yeah. to them. Yeah. 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 And Glenn, here's, here's another point where our research interests intersect. I mean, in performance studies, which is the sort of broader field with which I identify um, as a scholar, um, there's a huge amount of energy, um, intellectual energy and insight being geared toward the question of how museums perform um, and by juxtapositions of objects that is itself performing knowledge about those objects. And so um, my field's really excited about what's happening in your field. Um, so, you know, one scholar who comes to mind is um, Barbara Kirschenblatt-Gimblet, who's a major figure in performance studies, who has worked. I mean, if, if you were to place your field of study and mine next to each other, she'd be standing right in the middle, somehow talking to both of us equally powerfully. Um, but, but this is a real center of, of intellectual energy in the field of performance studies. And so I, for one, am really pleased to see these exciting developments in museum practice and museum anthropology crossing over into theater and performance studies scholarship. We have a lot to learn from one another. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> and, and here on the campus of the University of Iowa, is there performance happening in our uh, various museum spaces, or do you expect oh, that to yes. happen? Yeah. Oh, my yes. Mm -hmm. um, and so I don't want to an announce pieces that have not been scheduled um, or formally announced yet, but I know of multiple faculty members and students and student groups that are already generating performance in relationship to the old museum of art mm -hmm. um, and toward artwork on campus, including outdoor artwork. Um, we have a colleague working in the dance department, Stephanie Miracle, who's been working on, her name really is Miracle, <laughs> <laughs> been working on some really exciting um, choreographic work with students. Um, also at the symposium, um, one of the UI Intermedia Program's recent MFA graduates, Heidi Wyron Bartlett, is going to be premiering a film uh, that she made that is attached to an environmental performance piece that involves um, the old museum's structure and areas around that. And so um, there's something about a decommissioned art museum that, that seems to be drawing um, <laughs> dancers and performance mm -hmm. artists really powerfully. Mm -hmm. uh, but I have no doubt that the new museum space um, will also be a site for performance energy. Mm -hmm. um, I suspect this creates complications for, for the curatorial staff or for the, you know, the, the, it's, it's not always easy, depending upon what the performance is, to move things around or to reallocate spaces and whatnot. But I, this, the, 
the begging isn't happening so much these days. Now, every it seems that museum directors can see the value in it. Audiences love yes, it. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, to the point that, I mean, it's not just the Tate Modern that basically reconfigured an entire space and devoted it to performance. As many of you know, the Museum of Modern Art in New York shut itself down and then reopened with performance privileged in a way that's never happened before. Yeah. Um, I will defer to my glam professional colleagues. It sounds like an insurance nightmare. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> but, I mean, it's certainly of interest, both for, for patrons and for artists. And I can't yeah. imagine that museums wouldn't, you know, our museum wouldn't want to mm -hmm. somehow. Well, then you mentioned the ephemeral nature of some of these performances and so on. Obviously, there are video cameras now. Things can be taped. Is that part of it? Or is the whole idea to make it keep it ephemeral. It happens now and that's it. I think it depends on the artist. Um, there are some artists like Tino Segal, who I mentioned, who are absolutely ruthless about maintaining the ephemerality to the point that he won't even sign a contract because he doesn't want a paper trail. Um, <laughs> but so many artists, and this is true since the 1970s, have folded other media, documentation, video, maintaining artifacts as part of the performance practice. And many of them work the, those documentation pieces into future performances. Mm -hmm. So the lifespan of the performance is worked back into the live moment through documentation. Um, I should also say curators around the world are also much more open to exhibiting performance, art attacks, uh, performance artifacts across the performing arts. There was a groundbreaking exhibition on Judson Dance Theater not so long ago. Um, and so I feel like um, live experience is having a really powerful moment here. That said, there's the entire Instagram genre of the museum selfie. Mm -hmm. So um, for better and mostly for worse. <laughs> um, and so, um, you know, documentation of various kinds is part of what performers do, but also part of what visitors do and what patrons expect as part of their museum mm -hmm. experience. Mm -hmm. Well, I think before we close, we should hear about this symposium. What are the dates? <laughs> <laughs> so the symposium, uh, What Can Museums Become?, which is generously supported by the Oberman Center for Advanced Studies uh, will be the 5th through the 7th of March 2020. So less than a month from now mm -hmm. is when it opens. Um, our keynote speakers come to us from extraordinary institutions, including this one. Um, the format will be three keynotes and several roundtables. Um, and the roundtables are intended to be interactive. And so there will be participant uh, opportunities for engagement. Um, there's also going to be uh, an object-based pedagogical session, so um, discussions and activities on how we teach with the objects in our collection are part of this symposium. The symposium is absolutely free and open to the public. We have the website up, thanks to our fabulous colleagues at the Oberman Center. Um, UI Museum Symposium is the website address. Great, so. great, great, great. Gosh, well, thank you both. Glenn, thank you for being here. Jen, thank you so much, and good luck with the symposium with everything else. Really appreciate Thanks. it. You bet. I want to let everybody know that our next program is on March 26th in this room, and it's called All Eyes on Korea, and we have a really fun group for that program. So come if you can, and thank you for being here tonight, and good night. <laughs>